everyone, and welcome to another episode of Nautical Knowledge and Nonsense. Today's episode is going to be a solo episode, so it's just going to be me talking. I could think of no better episode to start this off with than the movie, a, a review essentially, of the Master Commander movie and the book series, which the movie is based off of. They're very amazing and awesome. Uh, so my goal with this solo episode, I'm going to well, first tell you guys how I even came across the movie. Uh, then I'm going to talk about how the movie's so great, talk about the books a little bit and why I think the series is just absolutely incredible. I'm also going to go into tiny bit of detail on the first four books since I read them three times and they're, they're very good. Uh, they're very impressionable for me. And lastly, I would like to talk about how, uh, just kind of my perspective as a tall ship captain, an actual sailing tall ship captain, and just, you know, my thoughts on the books based off of that and 15 plus years experience there. Uh, and uh, just kind of how the books have changed my life and how they've affected me. Anyway, I hope you enjoy this. Hope you find it entertaining. And I'm really probably going to recommend multiple times. Uh, if you have not seen the movie Master and Commander, you should go out and rent it. And if you haven't started the Patrick O'Brien novels, I recommend giving them a try. They're, they're pretty incredible. So without further ado, uh, this is solo episode, Master and Commander. Now, before we be truly begin, I have a confession to make. So I never, ever understood what people saw in tall ships, in sailing boats, in wooden boats, wood models, wood you know, old paintings, the history, the age of sail. I didn't get it. I really just thought it was a big waste of time. And yeah, and I was wrong. I was really, really wrong. Uh, so what got me, what the path that led me to the movie Master and Commander was teaching English in Japan. And basically I was teaching in a beautiful basin called Aizu in northern Japan, in Fukushima province there. And I got snowed in one winter. And so I rented a whole bunch of movies. And one of them was the movie Master and Commander. And I thought, whoo, this is going to be dumb. Uh, I'd seen the preview. They advertised as an action movie. I was like, oh, this is going to be lame. And just wasn't really interested but I put it in, and within about 30 seconds, I was just like, wow, this is this is good. And it was like, this is really good. And by the end, I mean, just the, the, the characters playing music and the setting sun and every the ships. And I mean, by the end of the film, I just had realized I wasted my life. I was like, wow, I've, I've just completely wasted my life. So all I could do for the next two weeks was talk about how awesome the movie was. And so I spoke to you know my my fellow English teachers. I'm like, oh my gosh, guys, there's a great movie, Master Commander. And finally, one of them said, Johan, I have the books. I was like, what? You have the books? And so she gave me the first four copies of the Master Commander series, and I just I delved into them and got. I mean, it was it was a labor of love, let me tell you, because they are a hard read. I'm going to get into that in some detail a little bit later on when we start talking about the books. But basically, I did about two hours of research for every hour I read. And these are not short books. They're pretty long. It was worth it. I, I loved it. I was learning so much. But I do remember thinking as I was reading, I was kind of like, oh, well, you know, I'm never, ever going to truly understand any of this unless I could go back in time and like actually sail on these boats. But you know, I didn't know they existed. And so I got back home in the States and I was on a Patrick O'Brien website for he's the one that wrote the series. And it said, sail on tall ship. I was like, what? They actually have these things? So I clicked on the link and it went to a link for the Lady Washington. 
and she was close to where I lived. And so I, I signed on for two weeks. The crew liked me. I liked them. And so I stayed. They gave me a job. And so that's that's kind of the, the very, very short story. I'm sure you guys are going to hear over the many episodes here a lot more detail, a little details about how you know I got involved with tall ships. But that's the long and the short of it. So yeah, the movie Master Commander. All right, well, why do I think it was great? Why do I think it was great from like the first 30 seconds? You could just tell. You could tell the quality was there. And I realized very quickly, like this is an historical action drama. This is not just an action movie. It's not some some kind of silly Hollywoody sort of thing. It's like you could tell there was real attention to detail real fast. And this was going to be an awesome historical historical fiction film. So, so yeah, the first impressions, I mean, the setting, it's on a ship, it's on a ship out at sea and it's, it feels like it, it really does. Like it feels a bit claustrophobic at times. You can see there's hundreds of guys on this boat and it's a, it's a frigate, you know, the, the master commander, the, the surprise, which is the frigate, though the actual frigate used was called the HMS Rose. But now if you go to San Diego Maritime where, where she's docked, I forget if they call her the Rose again or if they, they still call her the Surprise. They did call her the Surprise when, when I was visiting those those several times, uh, the San Diego Maritime Museum. But yeah, so that's the ship they use. So they use an actual ship and they're actually sailing in most of the scenes. And and it feels like it. It does feel real. Even after many, many years on Tall Ships, I watched that movie and, and just, I love the little details. The costumes, I mean, they the costumes are terrific. And you can, you can tell, like, I mean, even the way the characters stand and move, like, like it's, the costumes affect how they walk, how they act. They, they look real. This isn't like some perfectly, you know, nothing's, you know, there's oftentimes things aren't perfectly polished. And, you know, you can tell, like, they're, they're, these are used uh, costumes and uniforms that these folks are wearing. And, and, the, and, I mean, I remember little details. Like, they, at one point, you'll see fellows with top hats, and, and they have these like, like little ribbons tying these top hats in, you know, so that they don't fly away in the heavy wind. Well, I mean, I forget which museum I was at. It was somewhere on the East Coast, but that is like a legitimate find. They found like that top hat and that sailor's outfit. So they actually did like replicas of real sailor's outfits and real sailor's, uh, you know, just little details like that, like the ribbons tying the top hats down, uh, just trying to make it as authentic feeling as possible. And I do think they did a very, very good job. So the costume is incredible. The setting, the ship, the the music. The music is phenomenal. Uh, they have wonderful classical stores. The two main characters, Captain Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin, uh, they're both musicians, and so they're playing music. And uh, it's it's great. It's they 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 chose beautiful scores, beautiful music. It I think it's wonderful, and uh, the music's incredible. The singing. There's actual sea shanties. I remember. <laughs> I remember one of my old shipmates uh, who I will definitely interview at some point. Uh, but he, he told me, he's like, Johan, I never understood why you did all that singing. And, or, 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 or no, I never understood why there was all that singing in Master and Commander. It seemed kind of silly to me. And then I got on the tall ships and heard you singing. And, and, and we had all those shanty sings. And now I get it. So, yeah, they have some, you know, there's sailors singing. The, the upper class people, the officers, they sing songs. But it's not, it's, it's done just a couple times in the film. So it's not overbearing. It's not like it's something that's, uh, that feels, you know, it's not, it's not distracting, I don't think. But it does kind of capture that wonderful feeling of groups singing together and really how it bonds people. 
and the sound, the sound as well, pretty solid, pretty pretty good, honestly. Um, I remember watching one one relatively recent film uh, that was set out at sea, and they're supposed to be in a proper squall. I mean, this is like, you know, I don't know how many knots worth of wind. I, I would guess between forty to sixty, maybe even more. And you know, I saw it in the big screen. And I remember, like, you could feel like the the power of the waves and the sound of the waves. That was good. You know, that was pretty solid. But then you could just hear the actors the whole time. And like, like it was, the wind wasn't there. You know, and I, and I at first I was kind of like, something's off. Something's not quite right. I'm like, oh yeah, where's the wind? Uh, and it's hard. I totally get it. Because in real life, uh, you know, hopefully you've listened to my interview with Josh Scornavacci when he was in Hurricane Sandy. You know, and he said, aside from being in between the swells, like when you're out of this, when you're up at the top of the swell, like you can't hear anything. I mean, it's like sticking your head out of the car and going 100 miles an hour. It's you're not going to be able to hear anything but wind. But yet they did a very good job, I think, balancing out between making sure we could hear the actors and, and the characters speaking, but also getting like the wind is powerful and it's howling and it sounds different depending on what the levels are. So, you know, just again, that attention, attention to detail. Like I said, they used the HMS Rose. She's an actual frigate. And and I actually was lucky enough to have met the captain of the Rose during the filming of Master and Commander. Um, so that was pretty awesome. Got kind of the inside scoop on some of the, the stories, uh, some, some of the c- cool things that happened there. Uh, but yeah, he was telling me like, oh my gosh. I mean, he, he said they were cutting out structural parts of the ship to to you know get a better camera angle and i mean it was pretty obvious like they um you know at one point he's just like guys you can't do anymore or we won't be able to sail the ship like it's too dangerous they had a mock-up not a mock-up it was like a like a two-scale mock-up i guess of the hms rose uh, or surprise i should say on a gimbaled stage and last i checked it was several years ago but you could still see that when going down to mexico so they could actually have the actors in there and get the camera angles they needed and actually have the boat moving. But a lot of the scenes are filmed on the actual HMS Surprise and the actual ship. And so it was very interesting hearing just some of those stories from the captain and just how he had to had to kind of hold back the film crew because they were just going to completely destroy the boat if they had had their way. And they actually went to the Galapagos as well. Uh, I forget who I spoke to, and it may very well have been this captain. He's like, oh, you don't have to take the boat all the way to Galapagos, but they, they chose to. Um, so when you see it sailing there, like they're, they're actually sailing around the Galapagos Islands, which is, which is pretty awesome. Yeah, and even the food, you know, they kind of get, uh, they don't go too into the detail on the food, but there's a couple things like, like uh, Captain Aubrey's, uh, he, he loved his, to- he had like toasted cheese, I guess, or, uh, and then, um, uh, they do the the pudding and it, it looks it's wonderful because it doesn't look perfect but it looks you know it's like okay this is this looks pretty tasty it looks like different you know <laughs> you know this is it's 18th century British food I mean it's uh, as one of my captains said um, yeah British cooking it's the next best thing to the food there is uh, though I personally don't think that's very fair I've had some excellent excellent British cooking in my life uh, but they do they kind of show the food a tiny bit and they certainly reference some of it which is great the acting, uh, Russell Crowe, I thought did a brilliant job. It's pretty clear he's a natural leader. He's very physical, which Jack Aubrey is. He has a commanding presence, which you need as a captain. I've seen a lot of movies where, yep, it's written in the script. This guy or gal is supposed to be in charge, and they just aren't. And you can tell. Um, or they're saying the lines, but they really don't understand what they're saying. So, you know, whether or not Russell Crowe understood all his commands, I don't know. But boy, he made he sure made it sound good. 
So in my opinion, he did an excellent job. And when I picture Captain Aubrey, I do almost always picture Russell Crowe, uh, which is fine by me. Uh, Paul Beatty, uh, or excuse me, uh, Paul Batani. Uh, forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong. Uh, he does a great job as Steven, I thought. Yeah, he was excellent. Very good actor. He and Russell Crowe, obviously, like, like their scenes seem to work great. Both the friendship, uh, but also just the their differing views of the world and their differing places on the ship. You know, they're, di- they're, they're just two very different humans. And I thought both actors did a great job there. There's no BS in the film. There's no ulterior political motives. Uh, there's no like modern political agendas, agendas that get brought up. It's just everything's kind of presented much like the Patrick O'Brien novels. It's just kind of like, this is how it is. Uh, there's real no judgment placed upon the groups outside of the context of the 18th century. But I mean, you do get to experience their beliefs in things. Uh, there's an excellent scene where, um, you know, they're doing the, the gunnery. They're, they're practicing the guns and Jack's trying to get them riled up and get them to go a little bit faster. And so he gives this pep talk and it's like, and I forget the exact wording. But it's like, you know, boys, do you, do you want to see, you know, do you want to see a guillotine? And, you know, do you want to call that raggedy ass Napoleon your king? Do you want to see a guillotine in Piccadilly? And they're like, no, no. It's like, all right, prepare this Larbert's battery fire. And it's just, it's this great scene where it's like, you know, you're getting people pumped up. I, I just love it. So in my opinion, in general, honestly, I think it's an excellent representation of the books. And I still do believe that to this day. Um, Are the movies perfect? No, they're not. There are a couple imperfections. There's even a couple things I'm not even going to point out. uh, Because honestly, if you weren't on Tall Ships, you probably wouldn't even notice. Um, I will point out one little one, for example. Because a lot of of times, some of the, the actual imperfections are there for a reason. Uh, so, for example, there's a scene where, you know, they pick up a group of whalers that have been obviously, you know, they're, they're not marooned, but they're, they're set adrift. And so you can see them in this little rowboat and, you know, but they're all wearing their heavy foul weather gear, like the type of gear you'd be wearing going around Cape Horn. So they have Southwesters on, big heavy oil skins. I can pretty much guarantee you, I'm not an historian, but I'm pretty sure that whalers set adrift in the tropics would not be wearing their heavy foul weather gear. However, most people, obviously, you know, that have read Moby Dick or have seen movies based off that, your impression of whalers is they're always out there in their foul weather gear wearing southwesters and oilskins. So I totally get, for the audience's sake, it's important to know, okay, these guys are the whalers and they're different. So that's, you know, in my opinion, that's why they put that in there. Uh, So I think that's pretty forgivable. So there's stuff like that. Some of the casting, you know, mo- for the most part, it's excellent. I mean, honestly, so most of the ca- casting is like, yep, that's who I pictured. Or, yep, close enough. You know, pretty good. Um, they got Billy Boyd to play Barrett Bonden. Billy Boyd played Pippin in the Lord, in the Lord of the Rings series. Uh, awesome actor. Very funny human. Oh, my gosh. I wish I had <laughs> just half of his charisma. Uh, super awesome guy. But, uh, you know, he's not what I picture as Barrett Bonden. Uh, Barrett Bonden, I honestly pictured uh, just kind of a tall, thick-necked, really powerful, just classic kind of English working class man. I forget, uh, I did read at one point that Barrett Bonden was based off an actual person or Patrick O'Brien at once said, I had this person in mind. And you could actually look up his portrait and it was like this working class, like it, it looked like Barrett Bonden. 
And I was like, okay, yep, that's Barrett Bonin. So, so to me, Pippin never really looked like him once I knew who that character was. Um, even though he does a great job in the film. I mean, he does does great at fighting. He at one point, like they're they're tying down. I think he's lashing down one of the small boats, and like he's not even looking at his lashing. Which when you're a sailor, like yeah, he just finishes off the lashing and finishes off the last little knots on it without even thinking, which is kind of how you do when you've when you've been sailing long enough and and done this enough. So you know, little details like that are pretty awesome. And even the actor playing Stephen Paul uh, Bettany, or Bettany, he to, he's. He's a beautiful human. I mean, he just, he looks a little, like Steven is described as being almost reptilian-like sometimes and and just kind of, I, I just, you know, very, I just didn't never, I pictured him not being quite as, you know, just good looking as, as that actor. But otherwise, I mean, the actor did an excellent job, like I said. So that's enough about the movie. Go see it, check it out. I guarantee you, if you like history at all, and are into historical dramas and historical movies, you're going to love this film. All right, now on to the big one, the Patrick O'Brien novels. Uh, so first of all, Pat, all the to all the diehard Patrick O'Brien fans out there, uh, I just want to say right off the bat, there is no way I'm going to do these novels justice. It just is not going to happen. There's over 6,000 pages in the series, over 20 books, if, if you count the 21st book that did not get finished. And I just can't. There's no way. That's that's not the goal here is to do these books true justice. Otherwise, we'd be sitting here for 20 hours while I'm talking. Uh, forget it. And even then, there, I'm going to miss your favorite line. I'm going to miss your favorite character. I'm going to misrepresent your character. I'm going to, like, whatever. There's going to be so many things because these books, there's just so many pages and they're so unique. Everybody gets something different from them, which is kind of the beauty of really good literature and shows just how well Patrick Bryan did his job. The characters, I mean, they're complex. They're what can I say? They're they're very complex. They're very human. You got no Mary Sue's here. There's no Gary Stews. Like nobody's perfect. These characters all have flaws, and they feel very human. It's brilliant. The the two main characters, uh, Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin, uh, their relationship is fascinating. I mean, these guys should not be friends. They really shouldn't. They are polar opposites. They almost get into a fight right off the bat from the very first scene. And yet they become the best of friends. They become almost inseparable and uh, because they need each other. And it's it's fascinating. And there's so many times throughout the series where there is this back and forth where like, yeah, they almost, their friendship is almost shattered and by forces within and without. But yet they they hold together, which is, which is brilliant. Jack Aubrey, he is incredible at sea, like almost unstoppable, it seems. Uh, yet even then, he screws up sometimes and, and sometimes pretty seriously. On land, he is a buffoon almost. I mean, it's he is constantly, he's easily seduced by women. He's constantly gambling. Uh, he's getting screwed by charlatans. He's always, seems to always be in debt. He's always worried about money and about his status. Whereas Stephen is absolutely brilliant on land. He can read people like you wouldn't believe. He is, he is incredibly smart, almost to the point of being an idiot savant or, or almost autistic. Like he'll walk around with food in his clothes that he forgot about or just he'll, someone needs money. He's like, oh, here's like, he has all his money. He had no idea he even had it in his pocket. He's a surgeon. He's a naturalist. He is incredibly classically trained. I mean, he knows all the classical works. 
and references all sorts of, of folks uh, that were popular in the 18th century and probably many obscure folks that, that uh, many obscure authors and, and uh, thinkers of the day. Uh, but he knows absolutely nothing about C. I mean, literally nothing and has no desire to. And it makes for a lot of comedy like throughout, throughout the series. Uh, but it's not like slapstick comedy. Though some of it kind of is. But mostly it's just, yeah, he just doesn't care. And he's constantly being corrected, even though he's having to correct. I don't know, it's, it's fascinating to see just these characters that are the polar opposites. Steven's also a drug addict. He's often depressed. He's hopelessly in love. But he has so many traits that just make him incredibly endearing. I mean, he is, he is absolutely selfless to his friends. He, the, the two characters save each other on multiple occasions in their own way. It's, uh, it's incredible. And his quotes, his quotes are truly brilliant. And we'll probably get to those later. The characters, you know, they often have beliefs that are just not commonly held today. And uh, some of the stuff that they think is actually provable wrong by today's science and today's understanding. I, I, I really love that. I love that, you know, you, it's almost like you just get to sit down and have these discussions on on and what happens i find when when you do hear about topics that by today's standards are like oh my gosh that's so controversial oh you couldn't say that or da 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 it really made at least for me i can only speak for me but it makes me question you know made me question my own beliefs and my own thoughts and it's kind of like you know what what am i thinking today that maybe it's just a fad or maybe this thing that i think is so important may not matter you know 10 20 100 years from now and, and that, that's a lot of what I got out of just getting to hear these candid discussions. I love Patrick O'Brien's non-judgmental way of showing history. The class system, it's just a thing. It's just a thing. It's kind of just how it is. Uh, and, and yeah, there are critiques on the class system brought up by the characters in an appropriate way that makes sense for the 18th century, oftentimes in discussions uh, where you're hearing the pros and cons. And, uh, you know, things like, I mean, like, for example, uh, Barrett Bondin, like Jack in the first novel, Captain Jack offers him a promotion and Barrett Bondin's just one of your lower class, like four, four mass Jacks. He's one of the common sailors and, uh, Jack, you know, he, he brought, uh, Pullings. He's one of the main characters throughout the series. He brought him up what's called through the hawse pipe where he was a lower class person. And then now is an officer and Barrett Bond is just like, he almost laughs. He's just like, eh, no, I'm happy where I am. Like he's, he's at top of his game where he is. He's like, I'm too old to kind of be changing my ways. And there's something to be said about just knowing exact, like if you know you're at the right job and the right thing, there's, there's a lot to be said about being confident in that and knowing that that's the best place to be. I'm not condoning the class system, any class system. Don't get me wrong. That's not the point of this. I guess it would be more like uh, people getting promoted to their level of incompetency. Uh, you don't ever want to do that. So, yeah. So Barrett's happy where he is, and it's—I don't know. It makes—it's an interesting way of of presenting all these things. There's separation of men and women. Um, Patrick O'Brien—he'll often describe—and it's just—it it is what it is. Like, there's no judgment at all, not really. Um, even though some of these women are absolutely incredible characters and very incredibly intelligent, smart, capable human beings. It's not about that. There's no judgment passed. Uh, he'll describe major atrocities, uh, many of which are committed by all groups throughout the books, non-European groups, 
and and Europeans and just it's all described very matter-of-factly with little judgment in the heat of the moment that's kind of how real life works in the heat of the moment people often are not thinking about greater uh, greater issues so it's an interesting way of writing it and presenting it and the characters they're often upset and disturbed by the you know, by these atrocities and things that happen but they also have jobs to do it's not there's you know I, and very little points in the book so I, I think i can think of no scenes where i'm just like okay quit like ah, uh, you're kind of beating a dead horse or oh yeah all right this is what patrick o'brien really thinks like it's I, I i never got that impression in these books it's more just this is just how it is it's not it's very matter of fact yeah and it, but but he will he'll he'll explain how these different characters kind of deal with some of these you know issues like uh for example uh, the battles. I mean, you'll have these incredible, glorious victories that are like really, really, you know, oh my gosh, characters are really excited and this is great. But then other characters will be depressed or just shook up or completely, uh, yeah, just messed up and, and have post-traumatic stress syndrome by by these battles they go through. Uh, and a lot of it's dealt with in private. So it's it's a neat way of uh, presenting these old issues and, and current issues. Uh, the settings, oh, the boats. Oh my gosh, what's there to say? Like lots of boats in these books, lots of different types of ships, uh, lots of different types of boats. And yeah, it was very interesting learning them all. And let me tell you, it definitely helps being on tall ships to understand the different types of vessels in use and how they move. Exotic places, I mean, they go all over the world. They're going to places where the nature there just doesn't exist anymore. They're seeing artifacts and buildings and, and, you know, some of these places just simply are not there. Um, so I found that fascinating. A lot of these cultures are just, they're gone forever. And, and then, you know, historic places. I mean, a lot of time spent in London, uh, in historic England, Portsmouth, London. And it, it inspired me to go travel all around the UK. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I was very excited. I walked around London with a, a map of London from 1812 and all the locals thought I was nuts. I'm like, hey, where's this and where's that? They're like, uh, it's just been gone for hundreds of years. And and uh, yeah, I remember talking to one fellow because I had to go to the bathroom. And so I went up and I said, sir, uh, excuse me, where's the bathroom? And I realized, oh, and I'm in England. I said, um, I, I meant the loo, the water closet, the privy. The, and he's like, the bathroom? I haven't heard it called that since the time of King George III. And then he pointed me in the direction of the quote unquote bathroom. Anyway, British humor at its best. Style of writing. So Patrick O'Brien writes in an 18th century style, especially the first two, maybe three books. It's hard to read. I'm not going to lie. Like, it's really hard to read uh, initially. And they're, it's not dumbed down at all. So these characters, they're all classically trained. I mean, they've got... They are referring to classics and contemporary writings that are often, you know, most people don't know about today or know very little about. And they have incredible vocabularies, especially Stephen. Stephen has a very, very sophisticated vocabulary. And Patrick Ryan doesn't dumb it down. He'll translate some of the quotes, some of the Latin and French. In the first couple books, not, not a whole lot. There's not a whole lot of translations. Yeah, if you don't know history or boats, they can be difficult. Like I said, it took me two hours of research for every hour I read. Uh, and and this it's just the paragraphs are long. There's long, long paragraphs. And they're all grammatically correct. <laughs> and uh, many conversations where just the lines bounce back and forth. It's hard to follow. I'm not going to lie. 
Later on, he does get a little bit better about, and I, and it's hard to say how much is just, you know, the character so well that you know how one character talks. And so you can follow the conversation better or how much is, yeah, he does actually include a little more. He said, he said, she said kind of stuff. But, but in these first couple novels, I mean, they are a rite of passage and they're absolutely necessary. And I'll get into more of that later. But yeah, Steven's vocab is incredible. Um, some of the Patrick O'Brien's lines are just perfect. I, I almost, yeah. I mean, everybody has their favorite quotes. One of them, Steven, he's got a couple great ones. Like he has a quote on love where he says, as for what is meant by love, sure, there are definitions without end. But perhaps they must all include an abdication of the critical sense. I mean that one may see the faults of the other, but utterly refuse to condemn them. There's another great line where Stephen's Stephen and this other woman. Uh, this is very later on in the series, but they're flirting, and uh, they're going over. I, th- I think I think they're going over. Oh, I forget which language now, if it's Spanish or whatnot. But uh, he says they dismiss. They're obviously flirting with each other and want to. Uh, talk about other things rather than language lessons. And so he said, they dismiss the imperfect subjective with perfect indifference on either side, <laughs> which, which gave me a chuckle. Uh, there's a great quote, uh, not a quote, but you know, a line that I use all the time, which is where uh, Diana, which is one of the main characters, she gets horrifically seasick all the time. And, and so Stephen's describing what's happening to Jack Aubrey and and Jack just kind of like, oh, okay, you know, but, but then Patrick Ryan says, but for him, it was very remote and theoretical. Like it just been, you know, he, I think he'd only been seasick once and, you know, it's just like, so it's just this remote, remote and theoretical feeling of seasickness. And yeah, they're, they're definitely people that don't get seasick very easily. I could, I could see what that's like. And he'll, Patrick O'Brien as well, he'll sometimes twist cliches. Uh, there was a great, great line in one of the books where a little girl's on a ship and, and this, uh, you know, and the bow, as the bow hits the swells, the water splashes up and sprays over the whole bow and sprays over the deck. And, and the little girl's like, she's jumping up and down with excitement. And I forget, I forget the exact quote. I couldn't find it, but uh, basically it's something like, you know, he's describing this water and how it's, you know, every swell, you know, every wave crashing over, he said it, it's all, it was always, always different. And then instead of saying always the same, you know, which you kind of expect, right? Like something, oh, it's, you know, it's always different, but the same. No, he says, always different, always new. And to me that, I mean, that's what it's like. <laughs> like when you, I, it's one of the most exhilarating things ever to see just a bow crash into a swell and that the way the spray splashes over a boat, uh, film doesn't do it justice. I mean, the sound, the smell, the, the, all of it, like it, it's always different and always new. It, it is. It, it just never gets old after years and million, you know, thousands and thousands of times seeing that. Absolutely brilliant way of describing it. Um, there's even some points in the novels where I honestly wonder if there was, like, if they weren't directly written. And please, ladies, don't take this the wrong way. But if it wasn't written by a woman. Patrick O'Brien loved Jane Austen, obviously. Some of the novels, I mean, just the, the concerns of the women are so different from the men, but they're done with such detail to attention and they just feel, just to me, it doesn't feel like a man writing about women. I mean, I, I'm, and I'm sure women can empathize a little bit. Um, you know, so many movies are directed by men. So many novels are written by men that are about women. And, and um, you know, it's only recently that we started having the opposite be true. So I do, I kind of wonder, huh? 
know, did he get some help from his wife? Did he have somebody who was helping him running it by people like, Hey, what would, what would this lady say? Or, or did he just really, was he really in touch with the 18th century woman? Hard to say, but, uh, again, I just think that's part of Patrick O'Brien's brilliance. Uh, the humor, humor is amazing in this book. Uh, the characters have flaws and pri- priorities, uh, which sometimes come out hilariously. There's a great scene where the crew is fighting off a bunch of pirates while they're on an island and some of them try to take the captain silver and Killick, who is the kind of like the steward for the captain. He's, he's like, you know, he takes care of all the, the silverware and the food and make sure the captain's fed and his clothes. And, and he's just like this, <laughs> this very, uh, Oh, I forget how they describe it in the novels. It's so funny, but he, he's just, he's almost ridiculous in the sense of how he helps the captain, but he just flips out when these pirates try to take the silver and oh my gosh, and just starts murdering them. I mean, it's, 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 it doesn't sound hilarious, but I, I found it interesting and funny. Um, characters make mistakes. There's a lot of misunderstandings, you know, between Jack's Latin and, or lack thereof and Stephen's nautical terminology. Um, it can make for some pretty funny situations. Uh, there's also like like one time Stephen picked up this sloth and like Jack just hated this sloth, but then Jack got it drunk and turned the sloth into an alcoholic, <laughs> and it's just hilarious. And the two of them are drinking away. Um, I don't know. Maybe you just have to be there. Uh, definitely check it out. And then oh, like Jack being depressed because the U.S. kept winning all these frigate you know battles he's one-on-one frigate battles and jack is just like horribly depressed he has like this minor wound and it's like killing him because he just he doesn't want to you know even live anymore and uh yeah i found it funny and then the puns yes patrick o'brien fans there are some good puns in there there are some bad puns it's old british humor yes the puns are i think they're special yeah some of steven's quotes they're oh my gosh like one of the funniest ones I forget the exact quote, but basically Stephen's getting upset because Jack is, and all the men are constantly like, there's not a minute to lose. Let's go hurry quick. You know, tide waits for nobody. And Stephen's like, what is with all this hurrying around? He's like, just let me castrate the entire ship. I guarantee you, if I could just castrate all the men, this boat would just float around peacefully <laughs> around the sea, going from place to place without a care in the world. <laughs> you know, and, and it's, I, I'm probably not doing the quote justice, but it's pretty darn funny. There's another one where Stephen, you know, he says, oh, I too am as nimble as an ape. And Jack, in his mind, he's thinking like, Jack was moved to ask whether there was there were earthbound apes as compact as lead, afflicted with vertigo, possessed of two left hands and no sense of balance. That's what he's thinking. He obviously doesn't tell Stephen that. Yeah, so there's, there's so many quotes like that. I could go on and on. There's one funny little one I do want to include where, you know, because I remember in English class where at one point the English teacher you know, he's trying to, you're trying to get to the definition of what poetry, you know, is. And he quoted some famous person. I forget who it is, but this person's answer was poetry is. That's it. Period. Poetry is. And so they did include that in the book at one point, one of the books at one point where Moet, who is this uh, poet, he's just the poet's poet and always is making up rhymes and poetry. And, um, and at one point, somebody asked, you know, well, Mr. Mo, what is poet, poetry? And he's like, poetry is. And then right at that moment, they get interrupt, interrupted, have to go up on deck. And so we, we never hear Moet's answer, which I thought was pretty, pretty smart. There's singing throughout the books. There's poetry. There's philosophy. The sailor stories. There's, there's wonderful sailor stories. Um, and the cool part is some of them you get to actually see kind of change or even get exaggerated over the years. 
one of Stephen's surgeries he does in the first novel. Over the years, you know, these sailors tell that story over and over, and it comes from, you know, or he's, you know, they kind of describes it like he's doing surgery on this guy's skull and removing the uh, fractured part of the skull, the, the part that's caved in, and putting a coin in it. And then, but next thing you know, it's like, you know, like years later, it's like, oh yeah, he scooped out his brains and put him back in. He was fine. And, you know, it's just these crazy sailor stories. And some of the stories even get wrong later on down the road. People tell, you know, you were there. You actually were at the battle. You, you have it described to you in great detail. And the people tell the story slightly wrong or they miss, they put in the wrong character. I'm pretty sure that's done on purpose. And it's pretty brilliant because that's how people are. There are emotional moments. Oh my gosh, the battles. They'll have you on the edge of your seat. Uh, they'll have you up and down. Uh, at the end of one of the books, there's like the, you. I mean, I was almost crying with joy. I was so excited and so happy for the, you know, for one of the characters. And then last minute, Patrick O'Brien just kind of, bam, brought you down to earth again. It's like, oh no, no, really? But that is life, you know, and I, I don't want to give any spoilers away. So that's why I'm being purposely vague. But uh, there's another too, like some of the, the losses in the, the novels, like, I mean, just had me in tears, you know, even hard to talk about now, even as I think about it, how silly is that? But it just shows you how, how good he is at writing. And if, if you really take the time to get invested in these characters and, and even, yeah, and just, and, and what's going on. Um, he can really uh, just, yeah, your emotions will be all over the board, but in a good way. Yeah, I think we already talked about the characters a bit, just their moments of brilliance, stupidity, uh, and a lot of mundane in between. There are mundane moments. Uh, yeah, I feel like everything's there for some purpose. Uh, and the nuance. You know, these characters, they all respond to situations uh, differently. Uh, one great example so Stephen and Jack, they discover that a woman they're both really infatuated with is making love with another man. But they discover it in their own way, which which I thought is really neat. I mean, Jack is like a go straight at him, like, you know, sailor. So he, you know, he goes up to the woman's balcony and climbs like there's a rope or just or shimmies up a pipe or something. Somehow gets up to the top without making a ton of noise and sees them in the act. You know, this is at night. They don't see him, obviously. And goes down and he's just distraught. You know, whereas Steven, Steven's a more indirect character. He's more of a sleuth. He's more of a, you know, that kind of sh you know shadowy character. And so he picks the lock to the front door. He goes up. He smells the perfume of, you know, this this woman. And the perfume of the man. Or, you know, or, he'll, or he smells the scent on the, the man. And, you know, and that's the perfume that he gave her. And so it's very subtle. I, and I'm not, not doing this scene full justice. It's very, very subtle how he did it. And so a lot of times the characters will approach different situations differently, but still come to the same conclusion, which, which I thought was great. Uh, so, yeah, now I'd like to delve into a little bit of detail on the first four books and just hopefully get people excited about him. I hope you are now. I don't know. <laughs> uh, hopefully not turning you off because uh, they're brilliant books. Uh, so Master Commander, this is how Jack and Steven meet. It introduces their dynamics and the general setting of the series. A lot of time out at sea, a lot of great battles, a lot of close calls, uh, one of which are is used in the movie. Uh, where they set up a dummy of a sail and, and the stern lights uh, to distract the ship and, and, and throw them off their path at night, which is pretty awesome. Apparently that happened in real life, by the way. 
final battle uh, takes is actually uh, a small spoiler, not a real spoiler, but the final battle is experienced from Gibraltar Rock. So you're not actually in the final battle that takes place in the book, but you are with your characters. And it's it's really cool how they describe it. I won't give away more than that. But I do want to point out, um, I happened to come across an encyclopedia. It's a long story, so I'm going to make it very, very short. Basically, I came across an Encyclopedia Britannica in Japan, like the 18, like 1870s, 1880s or thereabouts. And uh, it was fascinating because I just happened to go through and found that battle. Like I found reference to that battle. And it was, they had like a solid paragraph on it or more. It was actually pretty, you know, and this kind of shows you countries' values and um, just how, how different countries view different events. So obviously the British Encyclopedia Britannica put in, you know, a solid paragraph or more on this relatively obscure naval battle by American standards. Uh, actually very obscure, I would say. Most people don't know about it. And yet the Battle of Gettysburg, which every American knows about, books are written about it, movies are written about it. I went to the 150th anniversary that was awesome with tens of thousands of reenactors and like dozens and dozens of guns and uh, cannons. And it was epic and amazing. Battle of Gettysburg. Yeah, it was like one sentence. It was like the Union, <laughs> the Union and Southern forces, Union Confederate forces met at the town of Gettysburg. It resulted in a Confederate withdrawal. That is technically what happened, <laughs> but you know, so so it's pretty, you know. But for the Americans, of course, this is the turning point of the war, uh, from our perspective. And so, anyway, a little little story there. Uh, I hope folks find it interesting. Uh, Post captain. All right, so this is where the gloves are going to come off with the Patrick O'Brien fans, because I know half of them are probably going to hate me, half of them are going to love me. Here we go. I agree with Dean King's assessment. Dean King writes a lot of the supplemental uh, works to the, the series to help you understand it, like Sea of Words. I believe it's Harbors and High Seas, which has a lot of maps. Uh, anyway, Dean King, I agree with his sentiments, which is Post-Captain is the seminal book in the series. Yeah, period. That's it. It's the seminal book in the series. Uh, the first book, so basically... This this novel is over 450 pages long, Post Captain, which is the second book. And the first 200 pages or more are on land. It reads like a Jane Austen novel. It is very hard to read for somebody that's expecting a novel like the first book, which is like, oh, a bunch of guys going around shooting stuff. Yeah, this is awesome. You know, like, no, you are on land. You are having very <laughs> intense drama involving men and women in the 18th century. And it's brilliant. I did not think that the first time I read it. I was probably more of the, let's get moving, let's go, what's going on. But it is absolutely essential to the rest of the series. It's it's what makes it a great historic work of fiction. Otherwise, yeah, you just, the characters would not, like it introduces a lot of the subtleties of the characters, a lot of the nuance, a lot of their depth, the depth of the characters. It introduces this drama that's on, you know, it's ongoing throughout the series. So, Sorry. Yep. Post-Captain. I've read it three times now. Each time I read it, it gets better. And yeah, you're probably going to hate it the first time. <laughs> you just are, but I love it. It's it's brilliant. Absolutely necessary. Yeah. So HMS Surprise. Uh, so this is, the this is the first time where I wasn't sure if I was getting used to 
the 18th century writing or did Pastor Brian really make it easier to read? But I really felt like this one read a lot easier for me. Um, they go to some pretty cool places. They go to India, which is brilliant. Uh, I mean, it's it, it, just the description of the cultures, the people, the food, uh, the everybody from, from the natives to the Europeans to the foreigners, I, I just thought was, was wonderfully done. Um, it has some very, very powerful scenes and moments in the third book. I'll leave it at that. I'm not giving any spoilers out. Mauritius Command. Here we go. This is another gloves off moment. Here we go. So everybody has their favorite book. Some it's Master Commander. Uh, others it's Desolation Island. Mine is Mauritius Command. Book four. Yep. It read like a movie to me. There were just these up and down moments that were brilliant. Like the action was brilliant. The uh, Plus it had maps and that helped a lot. There were, there were a few maps that made it very, very clear where the action was taking place. I just had a much easier time picturing what was going on without, you know, the extra research. And the final scene, it's just, oh man. I mean, my emotions were all over the board in the last, I forget how many pages, but but basically the the final few scenes of the the novel, uh, wrapping it up, uh, the several scenes there were just, oh my gosh. Emotions were all over the place. It was brilliant. Another cool thing too is like, it was so clear, like I could look up places, like on Google Maps, I could look up where, you know, some of these forts were, where some of these harbors were and actually see the the ruins of them. So I thought that was pretty cool. So yeah, Mauritius Command, that's my favorite of the of the series. I'm not going to lie here. The books do seem to taper off to a certain degree towards the very end of the series. You know, and, I, and I'm talking like probably after book 16 or 17. So it's really, really far down the road. But yeah, a few lines seem to be like really similar, almost repeats of previous lines. Um, you know, and, and I'm not talking character lines. I'm talking just the way things are written. Characters depart the series in one way or another, just kind of so, you know, like, yeah, it just kind of happens. Which, yeah, sometimes I, I get that. That's real life. But when you've been with characters for, you know, a long time, it, I don't know. It's, it's, it's just not how I would have done it, I guess. Uh, I'm sure Patrick O'Brien had his reasons, but... Uh, yeah, they, they do seem to taper off a little bit. And I, I may just leave it at that. But they're still very good. I mean, I definitely recommend reading through book 20 for sure. Uh, all right, here we go, folks. My insight as a tall ship sailor and a captain. Well, first of all, <laughs> I got I to gotta say something which I didn't believe when I read the books. So sailors actually use their sailor vocabulary ashore, especially when they're amongst other sailors. I thought that was one of the things that was the silliest things in the novels. I'm like, ah, yeah, whatever, Patrick O'Brien. Sure, the sailors are going to be referring to stuff as port and starboard and using all their you know, boat vocabulary to describe things. Um, actually, that's true. In fact, they probably do it more on land than on the boat. The ships, the old ship vocabulary, it's there to bond. You know, Basically, it's there to tell you, you know right away. If somebody comes on board a ship, you know if they're a sailor or not by the way they talk. Uh, it's the way they talk, the way they walk, just kind of their general attitude. You can kind of tell real fast. And the vocabulary is one of the quickest ways to do it. So, and then on shore, yeah, the sailors, like, it's fun. It's like, it's kind of like when you travel to another country. You ever notice how people, I mean, I, I can't speak for other nations necessarily, but I know with other Americans, like, we tend to become more American. Uh, spent, you know, just, I, I don't know. I can't explain it, but it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, you're, oh, you're from this place and da, da, da. Like, like, I find myself becoming 
and I've seen it in other friends too, we'll become more American. We'll sound more American for better or for worse. I'm not going to judge it, <laughs> but I feel like that's the same thing with the sailors out on the town. So yeah, in real life, tall ship sailors would go out. They'd be using that vocabulary. Sailors are also really useful ashore. I mean, uh, I think in general, they are more useful than landsmen, honestly. And I know that sounds pretty bad, but like they're pretty solid. Like, you know, they can work hard. You know, they can suffer stuff. I mean, most people don't get sick almost ever. And yet, you know, people are throwing up their guts and working hard after that. If you ever want an earthquake proof house, just get a shipwright to design it. I guarantee you it's going to be earthquake proof. <laughs> if a boat can, you know, like, like, oh my gosh, just have them earthquake proof your house. Nothing will fall down in that house ever. Trust me. Because nothing's worse than being out at sea on a ship. And yeah, you know, just things like, like cleaning. My God. I mean, sailors, that's all they do every day. Every day we would clean the boats. Every boat I've been on gets cleaned daily, top to bottom. It's just what you do. It's, it's just how it is on a boat. There's tradition there. There's reasons for it. The, the dust accumulates. And as it goes down in the bilge, if too much dust builds up, you get clumpy and muddy. And that can actually clog up pumps, uh, modern and historic pumps. So that's kind of why sailors are so meticulous with the cleaning but historically. But they, they still are today. So anyway, yeah. So if you want your house cleaned, just hire a bunch of sailors. Your house is probably going to be shiny and smell of simple green if they're tall ship sailors. Oh, man. Uh Here's a great, great quote from the novels, which I love. And I'm, I'm not going to say who the character is they're referring to because I don't want to give, give things away. But it goes like this. In spite of the conscious glory of his epaulets, which are like the decorations on the captain's shoulders that indicate they're a captain. In spite of the conscious glory of his epaulets, an accurate observer can make out an underlying loss and anxiety as though he, a commander without a ship, we're beginning to realize that a hopeful journey was better than arrival, that nothing could come up to expectation, and that there was a great deal to be said for old ways, old friends, and one's old ship. Yeah, and that uh, that really, uh, for me, that kind of sums up a lot. There, There's a lot to be said about old ways, old friends, old shipmates, uh, and one's old ship. And yeah, sometimes on land, it, it does feel like that. Like... Uh, Oh man. Yeah. And it is so funny. Like Jack, Jack Aubrey, when he gets on land, he wants to have a garden and he has no green thumb whatsoever. And every time I get on land, I want to have a garden and it just seems to go badly. And now I'm working on a food forest garden, which is like the Titanic of gardens. Uh, but I'm trying, I can keep some stuff in the ground. It does seem to be growing ish. You know, it's just, it's a wonderful little life goal. And I hope, I hope many, many decades from now, people enjoy the food forest garden and I hope it produces a lot for everyone. But yeah, I kind of feel like Jack sometimes on land where it's like, oh, what am I doing <laughs> with this garden? Or maybe other people think that of me. Yeah. And then one other thing too. Oh my gosh. Sailors ashore. Uh, they tend to go nuts. And it's, it's funny how, you know, sailors back in the, the day, they were the rock stars of their day. I mean, they just were. And really think about it. Like who traveled? Who actually got to travel? If you weren't uh, like a dignitary, like what common person ever travels? I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's people were famous for never leaving their village, right? Being born, raised and dying in the same village without ever having seen another village. So that definitely was a thing. For many people back in the day, now you get sailors that have traveled to places you've never even heard of, that maybe nobody's heard of. It's it's incredible. 
you know, and then they have their own culture and this, this wild culture. And, you know, to this day, I still feel like you can feel the residual sailor rock star thing, especially when you're on tall ships and, and you can just see it. It's, it's fun. And, you know, I, I'd like to think, I don't think I mean, a lot of the modern tall ship sailors do seem to embody it and, and revel in it. And I, I think it's great. I love it. Oh, and, and just some of the habits just haven't changed. Like I, I remember one time to my old shipmates, um, one of the captains and I think the bosun, yeah, they were talking and, and, and we had just arrived in, in, you know, I think it was Jacqueline square or maybe San Francisco. And they were talking like, Oh yeah, there's this restaurant over here. And they, they're like, all the bars and all the restaurants and all these places in the city, you know, that, that folks could go to, that the crew could go to. And they really were getting excited and stuff. And, and I was the mate and, <laughs> and I, I finally stopped them. I'm like, guys, this is what's going to happen. You're acting exactly like sailors have acted for hundreds of years. You're going to go to shore. You're going to spend all your money. And within a week's time, you're going to be coming to me and begging for, for boat duty at night just to be sure that you can't go out and you have a great excuse not to go out at night. And sure enough, one of the guys talking in that conversation, he came up to me a week later. He's like, Johan, um, you're right. I was wondering if I could get boat duty for the next week. And <laughs> he just completely run out of money. It was great. So I thought that was pretty funny. But yeah, changes in my life. Uh, so these books and the, the movie, Master and Commander, have enriched my life beyond belief. I mean, of course, there's the tall ships. But like my understanding of history and of nautical... Well, I would have made my, my kids' books, my historical nautical-themed kids' books. That would have never happened. You know, just my reading of history now, I... I... I I don't have time, obviously, to delve too deeply into every topic, but there are no one-liners anymore for history. You, you know, it's it's like, uh, and by one-liners, I mean, you know, for example, uh, Louis the Sixteenth died like a king. Like, okay, great, he did. I mean, that's that's a good way to sum it up. But the details there are incredible. They're horrific. They're like, like the more you peel back the layers of that time period, the more you're like, wow, this is intense. And it does zero justice, zero justice to anything. Almost no justice, I should say, to just reduce history to one-liners. So yeah, so now I'm, I'm in the habit of looking up primary source documents, even if it's just for a few minutes, just to be like, okay, you know, peel back one layer, oh, listen to this person's, their actual opinion. Uh, find out more about this one person that's either held in too much esteem or too little esteem. Every time you peel back a layer, it gets more interesting and it kind of puts any contemporary era into perspective and our current era into perspective. There's other things in the novels too. Like I, I toast, I, I, I toast things now, which I probably didn't do as much. I, I guess I did it a little bit in college, but you know, I definitely love, love having toasts. And, uh, and singing, oh boy, I love singing songs. And it's not just sea shanties, it's like, no, all songs and singing in groups and getting, getting people to join in and have fun and come up with verses. It's, it's one of the greatest things in the world. Uh, and it's a real pity we've lost that, that way of bonding in informal settings. And I mean, my gosh, even things like, like bacon, like I didn't like bacon. I was not a bacon fan. I was not a huge bacon fan. I'm still not a, a huge, huge bacon fan, but I didn't, I never ate it. Like I think the last time I ate it was on my like Boy Scout trips. 
And, and I just remember reading this, there, you know, one of the novels and they, they were waiting for the supply ship to come in and they were down to, to almost no supplies, you know, just like, like nothing but ship's biscuit and, you know, boiled peas and just like horrible food. And, uh, and they just started describing sausage and like sizzling bacon, all this. And I started salivating. It changed my whole outlook there. I went out and bought like two pounds of bacon and ate it, most of it right there. And it was just like, yep. This is, this is for tradition. <laughs> Maybe not my wisest moment, but man, it tasted good. And I was happy I did it. So yeah, it has me wanting to have a library now and just old fashioned things like that. Uh, it, at my house, we got Craigslist free. We got this incredible China hutch and the people gave us their silver because their grandkids and their kids didn't want it. And we're like, yeah, we'll take, sure, why not? Like all for free. And this is like stuff that kings, that, that royalty would have killed for back in the day. And it's being given away for free. And the only reason I appreciate it, one of the only reasons is because of the Patrick O'Brien novels. Like I do appreciate those traditions. And I mean, to me, the silver, like from, yeah, it takes some time to polish it, especially the first time. You know, but now we just wash it every once in a while. It's, it's been fine for months. So, you know, it's not that bad. But I think without the Patrick O'Brien novels, like, yeah, I might have turned the silver down. I might not have appreciated, you know, just the tradition, the history behind it. And so from that perspective, yeah, the silver is great. From a, from a liberal, more sustainable perspective, like this stuff lasts hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, if you take care of it. It doesn't get much more sustainable than that. So I'm kind of confused why people would be turning down the family silver when... You know, but whatever. It's, I don't want to get, delve into that too much. Basically, I think either either political leaning, these historical traditions and this historical historical things like that are important and shouldn't just be give, being given away for free or turned into artwork or, or some something like that. They're their own pieces of art. I appreciate the luxuries in our world, the technology. Oh boy, do I appreciate our technology. It's, it's incredible, really. We're, we're living in miracle times. But I also appreciate old-fashioned moments, you know, things like dinner parties, like conversations, real intent conversations without phones interrupting. Uh, I really appreciate that so much more now, you know, and just walking around in nature and just trying to, a lot of things like that I appreciate a lot more thanks to the series. Yeah, so I read the first four novels three times, the first 10 twice, and the entire series once. I hope to read it at least two more times before <laughs> before my time on this world is over. And uh, I think that's a pretty good goal. Anyway, I, I hope this is excited, folks. I hope I didn't get too long-winded about it. I really hope you, you want to read these novels or at least see the Patrick, or at least see the Master and Commander movie. It's brilliant. Uh, one last thing I'm going to leave with the Patrick O'Brien novels, which is, a, a, I think, a perfect summary well, I say perfect, and this is this is me speaking from ignorance. So there are other nautical authors that are pretty famous. There's Alexander Kent. Um, there's C.S. Forrester. Uh, he wrote the Horatio Hornblower series. A lot of kids grew up with that. That gets them into boats. And so I did ask a, a captain, former captain one time. I was like, you've read Alexander Kent, right? He's like, yeah. And I was like, you've read Pastor O'Brien too. He's like, yep. I said, what would you say? Like, what's the difference between those two? He said, Alexander Kent... It's kind of like a 24 pack of beer, like 24 pack of Bud Light. You know, your quality, eh, not there, but boy, you're going to get drunk by the end of down in those 24 beers. He said, Patrick O'Brien, it's more like a really good bottle of wine. So 
Patrick O'Brien fans out there, you know, and, and other nautical literature fans, you tell me. I, I, if, I hope that was an accurate assessment from that captain. I like to think it is. A couple other things, some support books. So Dean King, I mentioned, uh, he wrote A Sea of Words, which is a nautical compendium. It uh, has a lot of definitions and a lot of explanations for the words. It is a great reference book for the, for the series. He also wrote Harbors and High Seas, which has a lot of detailed maps, a lot of prints and pictures of some of these places uh, that they're visiting. So pretty, I highly recommend both those books. Lobscouse and Spotted Dog by Ann Grossman and Lisa Thomas. This is the food from, these are recipes, like old 18th century British recipes and European uh, and foreign recipes that get mentioned in the novels. It's great. We had a cook, oh my gosh, uh, Sarah Valentine, a uh, cook face. Um, actually, no, that's not true. Well, she did it and so did the skook. And, like, there were several cooks that we'd have an admiral's feast and just eat like the sailors did. And, you know, you'd have like common, you know, four-mast jack, like the common sailor food, or you'd have like an admiral's, you know, kind of food. Uh, and so we, we did a lot of recipes from these books. And, oh, my gosh, talk about hearty, thick food. Like very hard to eat at first because our modern stomachs are not used to this type of, of hardiness. Absolutely brilliant. They, they cover a lot of the drinks, some of the old-fashioned drinks in the novels. And uh, can't recommend it enough. Yeah, Lobscouse and Spotted Dog. It's it's even entertaining, even if you don't like cooking or, or don't even want to take the time and effort to do it. It's entertaining and gets gets you excited about the food and the books in a different way. I'm sure, you know, there are other books on the Age of Sail and others on the Patrick Bryan novels. Those are just some to help you out. All right, folks. Well, that's enough of me talking. I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you found it entertaining. I hope you got something from it. Uh, so please, folks, go find your local tall ship. If you're near a coastline or a big giant lake, you probably got a tall ship there. Uh, check them out, help them out, support them however you can. Uh, you know, go go for a sail, volunteer, whatever. Find your local maritime museum. They're almost all they're all brilliant in their own way. Definitely check that out. Go local yacht club. Yacht club members are always looking for people to go sailing with them. Hey, if you want to get out on the water, you know that's one way to do it. Please buy my books. I got two little kids books. They're nautical, historical themed. They are no Patrick O'Brien novels, let me tell you. But I did my best. So anyway, feel free to purchase those online. Please support us on Patreon. And once again, folks, hope you enjoyed this first solo episode of Not Chronology Nonsense. Wish you fair winds and following sea.